last week began a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. And just a little bit of background before I begin reading. The year was 444 B.C. About 100 years earlier, about 50,000 Jews had returned to Israel from exile in Babylon. And about 75 years previously, the temple had been rebuilt. But the walls of Jerusalem were still in ruins. And last week, we read and heard what Nehemiah did when he first heard of this. And as we look now at Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll see the next thing he did. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews 
the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We have two more short readings from the book of Philippians. So turn to Philippians with me in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. This is Paul writing to the church that was in Philippi. And he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And continuing in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is God's word to us today. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks uh, that we can come to you uh, through your Son, that we have such freedom of access, and that we also have the blessing of being able to hear you speak to us. Uh, even through the Old Testament, which some of us find uh, hard to understand uh, and hard to apply. Uh, yet we, as we understand it, we see uh, just how great you are, just how sovereign and good you are, and how you work your purposes out so faithfully and powerfully. And so we pray that today will be no different, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, speak to us, that you might uh, help us to trust you and keep persevering in service to our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, before we dive into chapter 2, and following on from Uncle Mike's uh, very uh, good uh, historical introduction to us, I do want to spend the first sort of seven, eight minutes of the sermon with a bit of a history lesson. Uh, And my inner high school self groans. I hated history in high school. Uh, I kind of grew to love it in Bible college because uh, it was more relevant, I felt. So if you are someone who hates history, please do bear with me for six, seven minutes. I think it would be really, really helpful to understand the history of the Bible, to be able to get the most of understanding, especially passages like this, which occur in a a time of history that we may not be that familiar with, okay? So here's a timeline. 
All right, so don't get too caught up with it. Don't take photos. Uh, I can put it up online somewhere if you like it. Uh, this is an overview, and it's not to scale, okay? It's not to scale. Uh, the red arrow there lists where we are right now, right between when the New Testament was uh, finished writing uh, and before the new creation begins, okay? Um, there's lots that's gone before us. You can see we're kind of near the end of uh, God's history, uh, human history. Now, I want to highlight a, key, a few key moments uh, along this timeline. The first is creation and the fall. Now, I'm sure this is very familiar to most of us, uh, the beginning of human history, the beginning of the story of God and of the world and of humanity and the beginning of sin, right? The fall of humanity into sin resulting in death. Our next part along the, uh, the uh, timeline here is Abraham. Uh, uh, to him, uh, Father Abraham uh, is given the promise of salvation, the great promises in Genesis 12. And then the family of Abraham grows to become the nation of Israel, right? The chosen people of God. And the key event to Abraham's family becoming Israel is the Exodus. So a pretty famous story, the Exodus, happened around 1500 BC. And this is where the massive family of Abraham actually becomes the nation Israel. And as a nation, uh, as they leave Egypt, they are being brought into the promised land, right? The land that God promises to give to Israel. Uh, and in the Exodus, uh, God makes this covenant, uh, this promise with Israel. A covenant is kind of like a marriage contract uh, where they make promises on both ends. But it's really more God making promises to the people. And on the people, they have to respond in some way. And last week, as we saw in last week's sermon, that Deuteronomy 30 it comes at the end of the long covenant book of Deuteronomy. Uh, at the end of this uh, covenant-making process, the, there's a prophecy that God gives to Israel before they even enter the promised land. And he prophesied that the people would reject him. Okay, so the, uh, uh, they would reject him. Um, and then uh, they would reject him not just once or, or twice, but over decades and centuries, uh, they, would, they would have hearts that would grow cold uh, and dark and their rebellion deep-seated. Right and pervasive and disgusting. God prophesied that his judgment on such a rebellious people over such a long period of time would be exile. Right? He would exile them. Uh, but then, uh, after he scatters them far and wide, uh, God, in his grace and mercy and kindness, promised that he would regather his people. And not only would he regather them back to the promised land, he would transform their hearts uh, and that he will give them a triumphal return where they will experience prosperity and peace. Right? They will have uh, uh, the life of blessing um, and they will be protected from their enemies and opposition. And then uh, as this, after this prophecy at the end of, the, of Deuteronomy, before they enter the promised land, the rest of the history of Israel really is the history of how this prophecy comes true, right? the history of their rejection. Uh, we see it uh, as they enter the promised land. We see it at the time of the judges. We see it in the time of the kings. We see it during the civil war where their kingdoms split, uh, north and south. So the north kingdom called Israel, the south called Judah. Uh, and then uh, 800 years after the prophecy of God in Deuteronomy, which is around 1500 BC, uh, we see in 722 BC, uh, the first of the exiles, the northern kingdom goes off to Assyria. Uh, we know these dates because this is in history, right? The Assyrian Empire exiled the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in 597 BC uh, began the Babylonian exile uh, for the southern kingdom, the Jews, the, uh, the, the kingdom of Judah. Now, uh, in around 539 BC, uh, the great Persian Empire arose, right? So the Babylonian Empire 
falls, the Persian Empire rises. So Persia is kind of like Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan today. So they arose and took over the whole area. Uh, and so then now Israel, uh, Judah in exile is under Persian rule. And that's kind of where we find ourselves uh, here in Nehemiah. Um, so they, at, at this point, um, as Uncle Mike has mentioned before, at the beginning of the book of Ezra, um, the, the, the return, the regathering from exile begins. And this is where Ezra and Nehemiah fits, okay? So Ezra lived uh, and worked around about 458 BC, uh, and then Nehemiah came 13 years later at 445 BC. Um, they both came back, um, and we know because these books are autobiographical, there's quite a bit of it, which is written by Ezra and Nehemiah's own hands. Uh, there were two men who had returned to Jerusalem to uh, rebuild and to revive not just the physical structures of the city of Jerusalem, right, the city walls, the city itself, and the temple, but more so to rebuild and revive the people of God and the glory of God's name, right, which is housed in the temple and in the city of God, Jerusalem. Now, the key to understanding Ezra and Nehemiah is remembering the great promise and hope of Deuteronomy 30. Right, remember this? We gather and then transform hearts and a triumphal return of prosperity and peace. Right, this, is the, uh, this is the question, really, that, that Ezra and Nehemiah are ans is answering. Uh, the original um, uh, readers of this book right, were those in exile. Because remember, Ezra and Nehemiah wrote it. So who did they write to? To the people in exile or returning from exile, I should say. Uh, they're back in the promised land uh, after they come back. Uh, these were those who knew the promises of God. Uh, the question Ezra and Nehemiah deals with is this. Has God's promises come true? Right? They return to the promised land, but has God's promises come true? They've been regathered, but to what degree? They've been transformed, but to what degree? They've been given triumphal return, but to what degree? That's kind of the question that hangs behind Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, began, sorry, Nehemiah chapter 1 last week began with bad news. Right, if you were here last week, it began with bad news. The temple had been rebuilt during Ezra's time and before that. Uh, Ezra had done a, a lot of work to rebuild the worship of Israel, but the city still remains in ruins and the walls and the gates are still destroyed by the fire uh, when Babylon came in to destroy it. The people of God, they remain in trouble and they remain in shame because they weren't a glorious people. It wasn't a glorious city. Now, in response to this news, uh, Nehemiah is grieved to the heart, as we saw in chapter 1. And then he responded to that grief by fasting and praying, uh, a heartfelt confession to God for his own sin and for the sins of the people that have resulted in the destruction that he sees all around him. And he prays and asks that God will fulfill the covenant promises that he has once made all those hundreds of years ago. Now, we're situated, right? That was eight minutes of background, okay, and introduction. Now, getting to point two, as we begin chapter two, we see that it's four months later uh, after the events of chapter one. If you're familiar with your Jewish calendar, you'll know those months and you'll convert them. It's gone from December to about March, April. Uh, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, as we've been told twice now, uh, and he's serving the king his wine. Now, it seems that he's been able to hide his sadness uh, in front of the king for all of these months, but not today, right? Not today. Uh, the grief that Nehemiah felt about his homeland and his people, uh, the 
possibly frequent bouts of fasting and confessing and praying that he did. On this particular day, it shows on his face. Uh, some days you just can't hide anymore, can you? When you're grieved to the heart, it just shows on your face. Now, the king immediately notices that Nehemiah looks really off today. Uh, and he says, right, why is your face so sad? I know you're not physically sick, so it must be that your heart is sick. Wow, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? This is the king of the great Persian Empire to be able to notice that about his lowly cupbearer. He notices his servant's mood. He cares enough to ask, and he's got insight and empathy right, for his servant. Now, at first, Nehemiah is freaked out, right? He's afraid because you're not meant to look sad in front of the king. Apparently, there was a law back in those days that you had to look happy, right? That's why there were court jesters, to make everyone happy. But here, Nehemiah looks sad, and he got found out, and he's afraid. But then he goes for it anyway and tells the king why he's so sad. Firstly, he honors the king, doesn't he? He says, let the king live forever, Right, a bit of sucking up always goes a long way. <laughs> and then he shares his heart. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, strangely, at least to me, the king responds by asking, what are you requesting? Now, it doesn't sound to me like Nehemiah is requesting anything, does it? Yet it seems that the king could sense that behind uh, Nehemiah's grief was a wish, a desire. Now, at that very moment, we're told that Nehemiah prayed. I love that detail that's in this chapter, right? Nehemiah prayed. At a critical moment, Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven, the one who has a far greater power than the ruler of the Persian Empire, the God of heaven, right? Uh, the whole thing. He prays, perhaps for wisdom, to know what to request, because the king's asked him, right? Perhaps for a favorable response to what he's about to ask, or perhaps he's just praying that he won't get his head chopped off right, when he asks for what he wants to ask for. Now, it's important that we uh, understand the backstory here. Now, you've been reading along from Ezra, the previous book, which is the right way to read Nehemiah, by the way. Ezra and Nehemiah comes together. If you, were to read, if you read Ezra first, you would know that back in Ezra chapter 4, a few short years ago, this very king, King Artaxerxes, had commanded that the rebuilding of the walls and the cities be ceased. Right? Opposition had, been, uh, had risen and accusations made against Israel for being um, disloyal. And they were re rebuilding the city to rebel against the great empire of Persia. And so in Ezra 4, we're told that Artaxerxes said, that's it, right? Stop it. No more building, no more rebuilding of the city and the gates. So here, a few years later, Nehemiah stands about to request for something that King Artaxerxes had once said no, right, to. So Nehemiah prayed. And then Nehemiah boldly just went for it. Right, have a look at verse 5. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The only thing the king says is, how long will you be gone and when will you return? Now clearly, the king has granted Nehemiah's request, isn't it? The only concern he has is, how long will you be gone for and then when will you come back? And the answer is 12 years, okay? If you go read later on in Nehemiah, it takes uh, Nehemiah 12 years to do this. 
But Nehemiah's request doesn't end there, right? Uh, he presents, uh, he presses in, uh, and he not just takes a, an inch, he takes a mile, right? He, he wants letters of authority to be written by the king so that he'll have safe passage through the provinces that he'll have to pass through to go from Susa, the capital of Persia, which is like Iran somewhere, and make that journey all the way back to Israel. Uh, remember how back in chapter 4, if you know Ezra chapter 4, the surrounding provinces were very anti-Israel, right? And he wanted letters of protection. And he wants also timber for rebuilding from the king's very own forests, very own supplies. Right? Timber to rebuild the gates, the walls, and check this out, right? Even his very own house. Can you see that? It's crazy, right? He says, I want timber, not just for the gates, for the walls, but my very own house. Sounds a bit sus to me, uh, but we'll give Nehemiah that. He needs somewhere to live, right? Now, regardless, Nehemiah makes some really bold requests of the king and is granted them all, right? Every single request he makes, he gets. Why? Well, have a look at the end of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Right? Right here is the key to what's going on in this chapter. Nehemiah recognizes it and he testifies to it as he writes to the exiles, right? It is the good hand of God that was upon me that resulted in all of my requests to return and to rebuild, to be granted. All that has happened by, uh, so far hasn't been by chance. Nehemiah hasn't just caught King Artaxerxes on a good day. It wasn't Nehemiah being such a great cupbearer, right? Serving out the best wine. Nor was it that Nehemiah had such great persuasive power. Nehemiah's heart for his people and his city was aligned to God's heart for his people and his city. was aligned to God's promises and purposes. And so God, God's hand was at work to ensure that Nehemiah's requests to return and to rebuild would be granted. Now, so often, so uh, implications of this first, right? Let's just stop and see what we can learn, right, from verses 1 to 8. Now, so, so often, Nehemiah is preached and taught when there's a church building or a church renovation project. Or it is taught as a guide to good and godly leadership. Now, I definitely think that there are leadership principles to learn from Nehemiah, but I'm really not that convinced that it's about church building and renovations, right? You see, what Nehemiah is about is answering the question as to whether God is fulfilling his promises, not just to regather his people, right, but to uh, transform their hearts and give them a triumphal return uh, into the land full of prosperity and peace. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 2, the spotlight first and foremost shines on God. We see the, the good hand of God at work. God is surely directing the heart of the king. He's causing his eyes to be able to see Nehemiah's grief, his heart to care, and his mouth to speak and to ask for Nehemiah to bring his requests. We see that the extremely favorable response to Nehemiah's requests, the, the provision of materials to rebuild, and an army of soldiers and horsemen to protect Nehemiah on his way home. All this because of the good hand of God. It's amazing, isn't it? It's meant we might marvel at God in this passage, behind the impetus to rebuild the city of God according to the promises and the purposes of God. God is in the business of fulfilling His promises. That's what we see through the whole Old Testament, 
through the whole New Testament, God's powerful hand, his good hand at work to fulfill his promises. We see this clearly in this chapter, and we'll keep seeing this in the coming chapters as we read on into Nehemiah 3, 4, 5 onwards. As we trace forwards even further, we see that God's ultimate fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment of rebuilding isn't in the form of a new temple, uh, a new physical temple or a new physical city or a physical build, uh, wall or gates. It comes in the form of an eternal city, a perfect city filled with people with fully transformed hearts and a, and a full experience of triumph and prosperity and peace. And how does God do this? Well, we'll see the rest of this timeline, right? Uh, God achieves this by His good hands at work through His Son. God sent His Son to regather spiritual rebels who have been lost and scattered in sin and death. He regathers them through the Son. Through His Son, He reconciles right, us back to Himself on the cross. Through His Son, He restores and He rebuilds sin-broken guilt-ridden hearts and lives. He transforms us. And through His Son, He secures our eternal home, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, the final triumph that we can look forward to. Now, that's how God will finally fulfill the promises of Deuteronomy 30. But Nehemiah 2 gives us one clear sign that God has already begun to do that to His regathered people. Now, we're going to come back to verses 9 and 10 as we continue on in Nehemiah's story uh, in the next point, but we're going to pick it up at verse 11 for now. Right, we see that Nehemiah finally arrives back in Jerusalem, having made the long trip from Susa, the capital of Persia. And he spends uh, three days uh, in Jerusalem, and we're not told what, what he does in the first three days, but we are told in great detail what he does after the third day. Uh, he seems to have set an alarm uh, on his phone. No, well, no phone. Uh, he, he got up in the middle of the night, right? There's a, a sense that he awoke in the middle of the night, and he took a few men with him. He told no one what he was doing, and he took only one animal, the one that he was riding on, and he went off to scope out the damage that needed fixing in the city and in the walls and the gates. Uh, if you, as you read these verses, there seems to be this big stress on secrecy. Can you see that? Right, Nehemiah is carrying out some kind of top-secret, covert operation here. There's no leaking of plants. It's just a few men, perhaps, to be his guards. There's just one animal, so that there's uh, minimizing of noise. And there's the cover of darkness, darkness, night, darkness. Only after Nehemiah did all that, then Nehemiah made his request on the next day to the people to join him in doing the work. Now Nehemiah tells the people exactly what the news uh, he tells the people exactly the news that was told to him back in chapter one, right? Uh, the people in the city uh, and the city gates are in trouble and ruin. It's not like they didn't know, but Nehemiah reminds them, right, that they are people, a city in trouble and in ruin. And then Nehemiah appeals to them with the same request that he made to the king: "Let's rebuild all that is broken and restore the honor of the city, the city of God." Both the people's honor as well as God's honor. And then Nehemiah recounts to the people what God had done to enable Nehemiah to return, right? So verse 18, uh, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. See, the king, Artaxerxes, who had once banned the rebuild just a few short years ago, now was pleased to send Nehemiah back, protected by an army and provided with all the materials needed, right? The people would have been amazed, because they would have known 
they would have been part of that opposition and the stopping of the rebuild a few years back. And now it's starting up again. And the people's response to Nehemiah's request is overwhelmingly positive. And they said, let us rise and rebuild. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. You see, God's good hand had been on Nehemiah to grant God's work to continue. In response to this, the people strengthened their own hands for the good work of God. Now, what are we to draw out from this part of the story, right? The implications of this section. Firstly, let's consider Nehemiah's sort of covert operations. Now, there's no uh, explanation given to us by Nehemiah for why he did the things that he did. So we need to make our own cautious inferences, right? We need to interpret what's going on because we're not told very clearly. Now, some people, as they read this passage, as they preach it, they say this is a model of good leadership, right? A model of good leadership. The importance of patience. He didn't rush into it three days, right? He was in Israel. Um, and then he had good planning, right? He went out and scoped out the work. Because people need to have clarity, don't they? When they set off on a project, right, they have clarity on the work that needs to be done. People need to be given a vision, a clear vision. Now, these are all very sound principles right, of any kind of leadership and even church leadership, right? very good principles. But I wonder whether there's something just a little bit concerning about the way Nehemiah has gone about things right, and what it might be revealing about his heart. You see, this is not a, a, um, um, just a... Um, a, a a story out of the blue, right? It comes at the, the end of, chapter, of verses 1 to 8, where we are told what God had already done, the clear demonstration of his good hand at work to bring Nehemiah to Jerusalem. The fact that Nehemiah himself says in verse 12 that it was God who has directed him, right, to return and to rebuild and provided Nehemiah everything needed for the task to be done. In that context, Nehemiah's actions seem just a little bit cautious and pragmatic. Perhaps it reveals a level of fear because he's hiding his plan, God's plan from everyone, just until he's done enough work, enough preparation, enough calculations. Now, given how God had been so clearly at work to get Nehemiah to Jerusalem, this slow and cautious approach does seem to be a noticeable contrast, doesn't it, I feel? Now, like I said, we can't be certain about this, but it's something to consider. You see, there's certainly a danger, and I think an error, in assuming that all that Nehemiah does is great and godly leadership. Now, if you listen to uh, sermons, you, you go and search books on Nehemiah, you'll often find that, that Nehemiah's actions are always praised right, as being good and right and godly. But I don't think so, right? I think Nehemiah himself doesn't put himself forward as a model of leadership that readers ought to follow. Instead, we're expected, I think, to reflect on his actions and choices and to see if they reflect faithfulness to God or not, right? The story causes us to reflect, right? Not necessarily just to copy. So back in verse 4, Nehemiah's prayerful response rightly, I think, encourages us to be extra prayerful in those key moments of our lives, especially in key ministry decision-making moments. He was given an opportunity that seemed really good, really maybe even scary, so he prayed. That's a great way of expressing our faith. Nehemiah's acknowledgement in verse 8 of God's good hand at work likewise encourages us to see and praise God, uh, His good hand at work in our lives, especially as we do the work of God and we see how He is powerfully at work in and through us. 
Right? A great thing to do is to acknowledge and, and testify to God's good hand at work. However, I think we are right to wonder whether Nehemiah could have and should have been more forthright and bold in his request to the people. Now, there's definitely wisdom in being cautious and prepared. Right? Our church plant plans are two years long. That seems pretty long to me. Right? One church uh, um, advisor said to me, you really should start like, January next year. Right, one year earlier. I was like, that's too soon, Scott, right? right? There's certainly something wise about being cautious and prepared. But in this particular instance, given Nehemiah's experience of God, perhaps boldness rather than caution would have been the more faithful response, perhaps. And we're right to wonder whether the challenge for us is, could we be more bold for God? You know, when we keep waiting to be able to share the gospel with a family or a friend, maybe we think, oh, Maybe after I've gotten to know them this much more. Maybe after 40 more lectures with this classmate. Maybe after I sat next to the desk with them for four more years or something, right? We, we could be more bold, maybe, for God. Now, turning our attention then to the people's response, which is clearer, right? The people's response. How amazing was their response? Can you see in their response that there's no indication of any ifs or buts? There is no hesitation. They're just all in, aren't they? We'll do it. We will do it. Now, why? why? Why did they respond uh, with this all-in kind of uh, wholeheartedness? I think it's because they heard Nehemiah's testimony of how God's good hand had been at work in Nehemiah and in the king. And they could see with their very own eyes Nehemiah flanked right, by the Persian army and horsemen, right, offering him protection. They could see all the timber right, being carried right, from the king's own storehouses. For us today as believers, as Christians, we too have the same encouragement, don't we? Uh, to be wholehearted in the work of God. 1 Corinthians 15 is a beautiful verse about this. Uh, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, this comes at the end of, of a long chapter uh, showing us God's good hand at work through Jesus. See, even more than working through King Artaxerxes to protect and provide, God has worked through King Jesus to bring about a far greater protection and provision. We can see through the eyes of history clear evidence that Jesus, the Son of God, lived and He died and He rose again to gather us back to God. We see His promise of how He's given us His Holy Spirit to transform our hearts, the work that He will complete in the new creation, that he has given us triumph over our enemies, sin, death, the evil one. And one day we will be in a new creation where all, uh, all powers and all opposition uh, will be done away with, where there will be everlasting blessing and peace. See, knowing God's good hand at work in the gospel, the challenge then is made to us, right? Will you strengthen your hands? Will you strengthen your hands to do the work of the gospel? Now, this is a real question for us because next week, right, before Richard comes up to preach to us, I'm going to be having about a 15-minute sharing time to explain in more detail the progress of our church plant plans. And as part of that sharing of plans, there will be a lot of work right, that we'll need to do. Many of us already are working hard towards that plan, uh, but I'll be sharing with all of us that we'll be needing to work hard for the work of the Lord. There's a lot of work to be done. 
We'll be meeting Richard, our potential third pastor, and we'll see that as, as, as part of uh, getting someone else on board requires uh, us to work together and, and to, to increase our giving even, right? To be able to put in more resources, finances to the work. Now, this is just for the members and the regulars of the church, by the way, right? Giving is never for the visitor. So if you visitors, ignore that, right? It's for the regulars and the members. We'll need to step up in serving and in our giving. Now, I really do hope that God's word today will prepare us for what is to come in the coming months and years. And not just for this plant, God willing, will happen, but in all of the future work, right? In formal and informal ways. May God be at work to strengthen our hands for the good work of the gospel. Now, the final thing to raise today uh, is the opposition that we see in the middle and the end of this chapter. Now, I won't uh, say much about this opposition today, as the reality of opposition in various forms will come up uh, uh, in chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, okay? So we get picked up quite a few more in the next few chapters. Uh, but all I have to say is that there has always been, and there will always be, opposition to the work of God. Now, if you've been at SLE Church long enough, I'm sure you've heard this quite a few times by now, right? Uh, where, wherever we come in the Bible, we seem to always hit up with the fact that God's people and God's plans will be opposed. If you've been a Christian long enough, all right, if you're aware of what's going on around the world and around uh, the people in your life, you'll know that Christians who stand up for Jesus who preach the gospel will face opposition. But you know what? God's good hand is at work to bring about the fulfillment of his promises and purposes. All right, look at Nehemiah's final words in this chapter, verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You see, the, the promise of blessing is for those who stand with God. God's good hand ensures that His work will turn out successfully. Now, as we heard so many times in our last sermon series on Acts just finished, nothing can stop the gospel going out. Nothing can stop God's grace and mercy being poured out on those who believe. Nothing can stop God from gathering His lost and scattered people Nothing can stop God from transforming people's hearts, and nothing can stop God from winning, from triumphing over all of the opposition in this world as he ushers in his eternal kingdom. The enemies of God, those who remain opposed to this, won't share in this blessing. And so the final word here is don't fear them. Don't fear. Instead, with hearts full of faith and hands strengthened by the Lord, let's press on. Let us press on in serving King Jesus, in serving His church, and let's persevere in building His kingdom through the work of the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that through your word today you show us just how powerfully you have been at work throughout all of history we see in particular your good hand at work uh, through King Artaxerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, way back in the 5th century BC. We see your good hand at work through Nehemiah and through the people of Israel. But especially so, we see your good hand so powerfully at work through your son in the gospel. Through his life and death, resurrection and ascension, you have fulfilled your promise to regather 
your lost and scattered people, deep in sin and rebellion, how you have transformed those who put our faith in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, how our broken lives are being mended together, how you're making us whole again, and we can look forward to that fulfillment, that final fulfillment of a new creation. We thank you how you have promised and guaranteed triumph and victory in Jesus, that through his death and resurrection, he has won victory over sin, death, and the evil one. And once again, in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, we can look forward to that victory in its fullness. And so, Father, we testify and praise you for your good hand. And we ask that you would strengthen our hands to do your good work, to press on in doing the good work of the gospel without fear, but with boldness. This we pray especially in our context as we seek uh, to, do, to do big things for you, if it be your will, to be able to have this church plant, to be able to keep raising up servants for the gospel, both here in SLE and for the plant and beyond. Please strengthen our hands, please strengthen our hearts to keep working for the gospel, knowing that it is the hope, it is the life for all. For this we pray in his name. Amen.